what we're going to look at today is found in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 5 down to verse 8. This is the Passover. And this is what God instructed them for how they were to celebrate it. The Bible says in verse 5, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, so that's very specific early on, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Well, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. That's pretty specific, pretty, okay, we got it. We're not to do any order any ordinary work, and we are to eat unleavened bread on this Passover. Well, when God sent the final plague, we remember this, when God sent the final plague, he instructed the children of Israel to prepare a special meal, and that meal included the Passover lamb. They were to kill the Passover lamb, spread the blood over the doorpost, which is the tent, but that's what God said, over the doorpost and on the lens, and then the, the angel of death would pass over their house. But he also told me to do something else specific. He said, because after this, I'm going to deliver you, so you're going to be heading out, so I want you to make something. That's our love prayer, in case you're wondering. I know, it looks like it. Unleavened bread. That's what he told them to do. And he said unleavened bread because if they were to add leaven into the bread to make it rise, it would have taken too long. And that was to underscore the fact that their deliverance was going to be quick. So, every year after that, they were told to do two things. Celebrate the Passover by remembering the blood of the Passover lamb and preparing unleavened bread. That is the Passover. Even today, Jews will say to one another, with a strong hand, God led us out of Egypt. And this Passover celebration reminded them of it. That's the first one. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. The second one we're going to find is in verse 9. The festival of first fruits. The Bible says, eh, let's actually pick up in verse 10. The Bible says, when you come into the land, this is God speaking, that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheath before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheath, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord, verse 13. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering with, its, with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And then the final verse, verse 14, And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generation and all dwelling places. Well, this is actually a two-part to the Passover meal. The Bible said, the Bible referred to it in verse 11, On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Well, that's another way to say the Passover. The second part of the Passover feast was remembering with haste that which they left the land of Egypt. Now, this concept of the first fruits, it looked forward to a harvest that God was going to bring. In a culture completely dependent on, on agriculture, our society is in that way. We're very dependent on technology and computers and trading and money. Well, they weren't. They were dependent on the harvest. And God showed himself faithful by year after year, allowing crops to grow and the harvest to come. And his command was that they were to commit to him, sacrifice to him the first fruits of the harvest. 
one commentator said, the offering of the first of the harvest to God was a way of reckoning the fact that the land belonged to God. And it was a token of his abundant blessing. So we've had the Passover and the Feast of the First Fruits, our third festival. And these are all going to tie together. And we're going to see how, and it's going to be pretty cool. That's a verse 15. One short little verse here. The Bible says, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So, again, that Sabbath being that festival of first fruits. He said, You shall count seven weeks. Now, how many days is seven weeks? 49 days, exactly. And the day after that would be the, the 50th day. So, seven weeks is 49 days after the festival of first fruits. The next day is called the Feast of Weeks. Kind of makes sense that they would call it that, though it's not called that in this chapter. The Bible also refers to this celebration as Pentecost. The word Pentecost means 50. And Pentecost was 50 days after the festival of first fruits. Well, what was Pentecost? That was looking back over the harvest. If the first fruits was looking forward, Pentecost looked back at the end of the harvest, and the purpose of Pentecost was to celebrate God's gift of the harvest that the people had gathered by that time. So, so far we've had the Passover, the Feast of the First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, or Feast of Pentecost. Now, to take a little break here before we look at the final three. Our concept of holidays are a little different than their concept of celebrations and holidays. For instance, Thanksgiving. I don't know what your family traditions are. We never really did anything too intense. I know Kevin goes on the turkey trot every Thanksgiving. He wakes up and he runs like a mini marathon or something. I don't know what it is. How long is it? Uh, you can choose. Let's go with so 25 my, uh, my miles. Old age, I'm doing mashed potato mile. The mashed potato mile. The stuffing strut is a 5K and then the turkey trot is 10 It's like Okay, so, so their family has decided that as a family event, they're going to get up and run in the morning. My family is not that Kyle's way. Not Kyle is not pleased. <laughs> Kyle's for sure going to be doing, what is it, the mashed potato walk? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Oh, the mashed potato walk. Kyle got a gym membership. We're going to talk about that later. Um... <laughs> I'm recording this, so Kyle's going to listen to this too. I'm excited. No. So my family, for instance, on Thanksgiving, we would wake up and really family would come over around 1 o'clock. We'd talk, catch up, shoot the breeds, eat some food, watch some football, and then they'd be on their merry way. Pretty lackadaisical. There wasn't any prescribed method. Now, the house right next to us, our neighbors, I guarantee you they did it completely different. And the house next to them. Same for Christmas, right? Well, when we look back at these festival of weeks, we don't get the sense that they're as laissez-faire, lackadaisical as maybe our holidays are. And why? Well, because God wanted them to remember specific truths. Oftentimes, these truths came at a great cost. For instance, Passover. That was a time of significant death in the land of Egypt. That would have been a jo- it would have been a joyous celebration, but it would have been a somber celebration. Well, let's continue looking at the next one, the Festival of Trumpets. This one ties in pretty awesomely. This is verse, in verse 24 and 25. The Bible says, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Now, our timing of the new year is on January 1st, correct? We all understand that. That is our new year. Well, the Jews are a little different. They're operating on a different calendar than we are here. They actually have t- 
two New Year's in the year, which doesn't make sense to me, but it's how it was. They have a religious New Year, and, and they have a civil New Year. So God's people celebrated that religious New Year on the first day of the month, Nisan, and that was in the spring. So their religious New Year started every spring. Now their civil New Year started in the fall. That was the much that was the month Tishri. So the new year was signaled by the blowing of trumpets to gather the people by presenting an offering to the Lord. What a way to welcome in the new year. We have the ball drop. They would just blast trumpets the entire day. That seems kind of obnoxious, but that is how they signaled the new year. So a big deal for them. Soon after that, that new year, soon after that festival of trumpets was one that we're very familiar with. Look with me down to verse 27. The fifth the Day of Atonement. Now, the tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves. Now, I want to take a pause. That word afflict doesn't mean hurt yourself or harm yourself. It means fast. So, you were to fast on this day, which I guess in a way could, could, could be viewed as affliction. You're keeping yourself from food, right, for a little while. It was to hone their senses. It was to have their bodies focus on something important. So, you shall fast and present a food offering to the Lord. Verse 28, And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Now the Bible says here in verse 29, For whoever is, does not fast on that day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from, from among the people. So this is a very... Very serious celebration here. Verse 31, you shall not do any work, not just ordinary work, any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generation and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall fast. Now, other than the Passover, this feast is probably the most familiar to us, and we don't need to walk through all of the aspects, but the Day of Atonement portrayed God's taking away the sins of the people and the sins of the high priest. This was an incredibly important day. It was a day of solemn celebration. And I say solemn because it would have been a very nerve-wracking day. You would have woken up praying in your heart that the lamb that you're offering would be accepted. You're praying that the offering that the high priest would offer would be accepted. And as you walked to the temple, the sheer amount of animal sacrifices would have been a gruesome reminder of the fact that sin has consequences. But... It was a celebration nonetheless because God graciously forgave the sins of the people. So they were not to take this day lightly, else they suffer extreme punishment because according to God, their sins were of utmost seriousness. And our final one that we're going to look at, we're going to make a couple applications, show how we can apply these to our lives, is the festival of booths. Look with me at verse 34. On the 15th day, this one's interesting to me, I think Caleb would really appreciate this one. On the 15th day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation, you shall do no ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a, soul, a solemn assembly, you shall not do any ordinary work. Now, because... The booths, as we think about them, were temporary shelters made of limbs, sticks, and branches. For this week, each Jewish family was commanded by God to live, not in their homes, but in a shelter that they built for themselves. Now, why were they to do that? They were to do that to commemorate their 40 years of wandering in, in the wilderness. 
So, that would have been a yearly reminder as they're living in these shelters, and I can't help but appreciate the Robertsons at this moment of my life, because they have been living in a shelter for going on three years now, or whatever it is. Eh, let's say three, it sounds worse. Okay, no. For an incredible amount of time, and they can appreciate, wow, having a permanent structure is a blessing. And for these Jews, they, they no doubt remembered why they had to wander for 40 years. No, they, their doubt and disobedience caused God to make them wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And this festival reminded them of that sin, but also that God graciously led through that time. So, I'm going to go back to the whiteboard here for a second. We're going to make a little note here. So, these Old Testament celebrations, the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of the Trumpet, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths, they are in the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, right? And they serve a specific purpose, these six celebrations. Now, they had a purpose, and we talked about each one of those. Now, here's what's cool about this. So we can look in the New Testament and see some spiritual applications that we can tie up. And specifically, two themes I want to look at. The first theme that we can see is that of worship. Because that's what these were. These were times of worship. Let's talk about that for a second. The first, we see the concept of worship or celebration. Through these six festivals, the children of Israel had the opportunity to worship God for His great deeds. The God of the Bible, our God, is indeed a great God. He is a true God, and He is worthy to be praised. One of the most beautiful psalms is in Psalms 145, where the psalmist says, I will extol you, or I will bless you, my God and King, and bless your name forevermore. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. So, each of these Old Testament festivals showed how great God is. But that's not the only thing. As we look back at each of these six Old Testament celebrations, we see something. We see a shadow. We see a picture that is out of focus. Like a photographer who can't get the exact focus on the camera. They keep taking pictures, getting closer and closer to the image that they're trying to get. They're messing with the... What's the word I'm looking for? Ah, not the lens. Eh, controls. That was it. They're messing with the settings. That's it. To get the picture to come out exactly as, as they intended. So we're, we're looking at these six and we're asking ourselves the question, what is the picture? What is this? That's our second theme. Our second theme is the theme of Messiah. Messiah is a job description, yes. There's another way to say Messiah. It's a name that we're familiar with. It's the word Christ. See, Jesus Christ's name, Christ isn't a last name, it's a title. It would be very appropriate to say Jesus Messiah every time that we refer to him because that is who Jesus claimed to be. We see this theme of Messiah. The Jews celebrated these festivals year after year. They confessed their sins year after year. But they knew that one was coming who, like Genesis tells us, would crush the head of the serpent. They knew that there was a point to all of this. They were looking for that Messiah. And each year, as they did these time and time again, they were reminded he hasn't come yet. So when Jesus Christ burst onto the scene, this blurry picture instantly becomes clear. And with every miracle, Jesus proved himself to be who he claimed to be, Messiah, the Son of God. So as we look back over these Old Testament festivals, 
we can see, clearly see what they mean. Think back with me here for a second. Jesus is that Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that we would be delivered from sin's bondage. He led us out of captivity by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. That festival of first fruits, we're reminded, and we celebrate God's gift of the coming harvest, but Jesus Christ is the greatest good ever given to man. He is the first fruit of the resurrection, the one who rose again. And we got that chance to celebrate that in about three weeks. The Feast of Trumpets that announced that new year, well, trumpets will also announce the return of our risen king. As they sound, King Jesus will appear and he will reign over all his creation as he was intended to do from the very beginning. That Day of Atonement, I don't need to make many applications here, that celebrated the forgiveness of Israel's sins. Well, but the next year that would have to be renewed. Jesus Christ was the perfect and final sacrifice. So as great and as strong as sin's chains were that held us down, Jesus' powerful death and resurrection were stronger. And finally, that celebration of booths, that festival of booths that celebrated God's leading and providing for his people in the wilderness, we can take hope in the fact that Jesus Christ is the greatest good that we have. Now as we look over our lives, and we're going to wrap up here, we marvel at how Jesus blesses and provides. Now of course things aren't perfect. We live in a sin-cursed world. Things will not be perfect until Jesus comes again. But as we look back over our lives, we can marvel at how God continues to bless us. Think about tonight, for instance. We're able to live in a country where we can worship God freely, where we can go buy food that we wish, we can go enjoy our free time however we want, and we have the opportunity to speak Christ to anyone who will listen. So, because Jesus is at work to restore and reclaim his fallen creation, he's given us a task. He has enlisted you and I, his children, to help. He has given us a task of making more followers of him. Because believing in Jesus isn't the first, or isn't the final step. It's only the first. Now, although we are charged with making more and more disciples, that seems like a big task seems like a big task to be charged with carrying on these themes, carrying on these memories. Well, we can take hope in the fact that we're not in it alone. No. Although we're charged with making this, we are not on this mission by ourselves. We have been given fellow Christians to encourage and correct us, as we learn in Hebrews. We have been given the promise of Jesus himself is with us to the end of the age. One of the final promises Jesus gave. But perhaps greatest of all, we have been given the very Spirit of God indwell us and guide us into all truth. So, as we wrap up, let's celebrate what God has done in our lives. We praise Him for what He did for the Israelites, what He did through Jesus Christ, and this week, think about it. And so, as you come across the festivals in the Bible, as we're in our reading, we're now in 1 Kings, getting close to 2 Kings, and I hope you're keeping up with your Bible reading. If not, stay faithful, keep going. I know it seems like a drudgery sometimes, but keep it up. As you come across these festivals in the Bible, take a minute to reflect and worship God for who He is and what He continues to do in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this challenge that You are our greatest good. You are that Passover lamb. You are our first fruit of resurrection, Lord. We wait for that day where Your coming will be announced with trumpets. And Lord, we thank You that your sacrifice has been paid. You have paid for our sins. Pray for these teens and pray for these college-age students. Bless their lives. I know we have a lot to do in our lives and we have a lot crowding in on our focus and our attention. Help us to rid ourselves of the guilt of sin 
of the guilt of our past. Help us to claim the promises that your mercies are new every morning. Let us not be held down and hindered by our sin. Give us grace. Please speak truth to these teens. Help them to know that your way is better. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this Easter season. Give us grace. Bless the remainder of our time. In your name I pray. Amen.